Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it still stands in Orphra, which belongs to their Bozrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second uh, bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And then we'll skip over to verse 33. It says, Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped, encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abazrites were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Nephtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said, God, said to God, If you shall save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak to you once more. Please, let me, just, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today, and we come confessing our weakness. Uh, We come confessing our utter inability to apply these words to our own hearts and to our own lives in our own power. Uh, Father, if, if it is we who must interpret, if it is we who must do the work of writing these truths on our hearts, and if it is we who must make the necessary changes in our lives to, to be transformed, then we know, Father, that we are doomed to fail. 
And so we ask in these moments that you would, by your grace and your mercy, through the work of your Holy Spirit in us, that you would show us Jesus, that you would help these words to, to penetrate to the depths of our souls so that we might encounter our Savior, and through that encounter, we might be transformed. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is a long passage, as we just recognized, and so rather than delighting you this morning with one of my usual um, engaging introductions, that was a joke, by the way, I don't know if y'all are picking up on that this morning, I recognize it's not very easy, Uh, I simply want to begin by, by setting the stage, by sort of giving us some context for what's going on here as we approach Judges chapter 6. And so, just remember that the book of Judges as a whole, it is marked by a consistent pattern. It's marked by this cycle in the life of Israel. You remember Joshua had brought the people into the promised land and the command was to go in and to clear all the Canaanites out, right? To to kill them all, wipe them all out. And yet the people failed in that mission, that they allowed the Canaanites to to persist in the land, and as a result, they they consistently fall back into the sins of the Canaanites, right? They they worship false gods, they they perform practices that are against God's law, and so you have this, this cycle of sin that consistently comes, and God, as a result of that, He sends judgment upon the people, usually in the form of a foreign power that comes in, oppresses the Jews, so that they eventually, they cry out for deliverance. They cry out in their distress, Uh, and God, in his mercy, he raises up judges to do just that, to deliver them. But as, as you read along, what you notice is these cycles, they get progressively worse, in, in other words, the, the sin gets worse, but also the judges that God raises up, they get worse along the way. So that by the end of the book, anybody who is reading Judges should recognize that Israel is in desperate need of new leadership. That they are in, actually, desperate need of a king, someone who can keep them straight, a dynasty that will rule so that from generation to generation, this cycle breaks, okay? They need somebody to be with them consistently. Now, God recognized that that was going to be the reality. You remember in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when he gives the law to Moses, he he gives a whole section about kings. He recognizes that the people are going to need a king at some point. Now, we know that when they finally get to that point, They don't pick the right king. They want a king that is like every other king in the world. They pick Saul, who looks like a king, who is kingly in his manner. But God knows they need a king. Okay? So that's important, and we're going to come back to it later. So keep that in your mind. But for now, just just note that one of these cycles has just happened as we approach Judges chapter 6. Okay? In in Judges 4 and 5, Israel sinned. God sold them into the hand of the king of Canaan. He had 900 chariots. Uh, And so the people, they they cry out to God as they do consistently. And God raised up Deborah uh, and Barak, who who defeated the king's men, the the commander Sisera, with a little help from Jael and a tent peg. 
and they ushered in 40 years of peace, 40 years of peace in the life of Israel. So that's, that's what has led us into Judges chapter 6. The problem is that Deborah and Barak, they, they eventually die. When they die, when they are no longer on the scene, the cycle, it, it just starts anew. And so in 6.1, we read there that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them over into the hand of Midian. Midian, this great nation who, who overpowered them, who oppressed them so that they had to go live in caves, uh, who, who stole their crops, destroyed their crops, who made them very low, it says. So the people uh, sort of... As an insurance policy, I guess, they, they, they cry out to God. And though they had disobeyed, the, the one who brought them out of Egypt, the one who delivered them from bondage in verses 8 through 10 there, he hears their cry once again, and he determines once again to redeem them, to deliver them. He raises up this man, Gideon. Now look, there's, there's a whole sermon just right there. We don't have time to preach it today, but the reality is this cycle in their lives is the cycle of all of our lives, right? We recognize God's truth, and we love the fact that he is our Savior, but then things get pretty good, and we begin to rely on who? Usually ourselves, right? Everybody but God, and distress comes, and so we again, oh yeah, we got to cry out to God, right? This pattern is a pattern that is consistent in the lives of God's people. And it's a pattern that leads us, like it did Israel, often into distress. But here, God has heard the cry of his people, and he raises up this man Gideon. Now, I I don't know about you, but when I think of God raising up someone, particularly someone who is going to be a judge or a prophet, someone who is going to deliver his people... I have in my mind this image of someone who would be rather impressive, right? So, someone who would be knowledgeable, maybe even someone who would be particularly godly. That's certainly what Israel is going to, going to expect later on, right? They, they, they have this image of a king, and they want him to fulfill their image of the king. And certainly, as we approach judges especially in, in sometimes in Sunday school, that's the way that we have presented these judges. We kind of whitewash their stories. We kind of sanitize them. And we're saying, look, you just need to be like Gideon. Or you need to be like Samson. You need to be like these great heroes of the Old Testament. And to be sure, these men make their way into Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. And so in one sense, there is some way that we need to be like these men. But, but my point for us today, what I'm really trying to get us to here, is how do we apply men like Gideon to our lives? H- how do we apply these Old Testament stories, really all of the Bible, these stories of these great people of faith, to our own lives? You know, our tendency is to read it and to say, well, I just need to be like that. I need to be like these people. What I want to present to you today is, or maybe what I want to ask you, is who really is the hero of, these, of this story? Who, who is the hero of all of these stories? Thank you. I hear you. That's what I'm talking about. See? Out of the mountain. Let's go. 
good. Well, he, he just ruined it, but we're going to see that ultimately it is God who is the hero of these stories. And we're going to see it in, these, uh, in the life of Gideon through these three separate scenes. Okay, so let's look at it together. The first thing I want you to notice is the, the call of Gideon, okay? The call of Gideon. Uh, he is there in Ophrah uh, under the terebinth, and he is doing what men in that time would have done, right? He is threshing the wheat. He is separating the wheat and the chaff. But notice, where is it that he is doing this? Not on the threshing floor, not in an open space where the wind could actually help him, right? Which is the reason why you would do it in the open. He is doing it in a wine press, right? He is doing it in an enclosed space. Why? Because he is afraid. Now, I don't know about you, but when you were going to begin a story of a hero, this is not how I would have begun the story. You know, you think of David at least, and David had his own issues, but at least when his story begins, he is guarding sheep. He's fighting bears and lions, right? You think of Elijah and his encounter with the prophets of Baal. You know, these men, even Paul, is, is bold as he goes out to declare the gospel of the Lord. But not Gideon. Gideon is afraid. He, he is hiding. And so you can almost see the reaction on his face when the angel of the Lord in verse 12 says to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, he's in the wine press and he's going, did somebody else come in here? Are you talking to me? Because clearly there is nothing mighty or particularly valorous, I don't know if that's a word, but it's going to be right now, valorous about Gideon. There's also not anything particularly godly, it seems, about Gideon. Because in verse 13, he essentially says, where is Yahweh? Where, where is God? Where are all of his mighty deeds that he is supposed to do for his people? You know, it seems to Gideon that God has forsaken them. His faith, at least in this moment, seems to be pretty weak. Notice all of that, uh, it, it doesn't... It doesn't seem to phase God all that much, right? In fact, he doesn't really address Gideon's concern at all there in verse 14. No, he, he just sends him. He says, go and do this. You're going to go and defeat the Midianites. And then he gives him an assurance at the end of that verse. Am I not the one who sends you out? This is my plan, Gideon. I am the one at work. I am the one who is with you. Now, it's significant, and we, we get to see this as those who are reading God's word, that, that it changes, from our perspective, we see that it is the Lord. It is Yahweh that is speaking to Gideon. How much of that he knew at this point, we don't really know, because he, he's talking to the angel of the Lord, right? Lowercase, L-O-R-D, the L's capitalized, but O-R-D, lowercase, right? But we know that it is cap, capital L-O-R-D that is actually speaking to him. So we think, all right, well, you know, it, it starts off bad for Gideon. He's nervous about it, but now he, he'll get it, right? It's not what happens. He, 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 this is not confident acceptance that we get from him, but instead, in verse 15, we get more doubt. And this time it is doubt directly related to himself. He says, Lord, don't you know who I am? Uh, my family is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the weakest of all of them. I am the youngest of my family. The least in my father's house. A 
essentially he's saying to the maker of heaven and earth, maker of heaven and earth, I think you've got the wrong guy here. You know, sort of like Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, I'm too young. And Moses says, I, I can't speak clearly. You've got the wrong guy. Now, maybe this is, is true humility on the part of Gideon. Or maybe this is just a, a way to get out of doing what God calls him to do. Either way, notice that God is still not swayed. He, he is still not deterred from his purpose. In verse 16, he says, Gideon, I know that you are nothing in and of yourself. I know that you are weak. But then he says, he gives him the assurance again. I will be with you. And this time, Yahweh goes so far as to give him a guarantee. There in verse 16b, he says, you will defeat the Midianites. To one man, as one man, you're going to defeat them all. So we have this, this dramatic call. We have Yahweh's plan that is here before us. We have him guaranteeing success. And so we think, all right, finally, all doubt and all fear and all questions, they are finally removed. But again, verse 17, Gideon is, is still not convinced. He says, show me who you really, if you really are the Lord, then show me that's who you are. Give me a visible, tangible sign that you are who you say you are. And so he goes and he gets the meat and the cakes and the broth and the angel uh, commands him to put it there on the stone and he touches it with the end of his staff and fire consumes it all. And the angel vanishes before him. And then, finally, in that moment, at least for a moment, Gideon recognizes that he has been in the presence of the angel of the Lord, and he is afraid, friends. He, fear overtakes him. He recognizes that he should not have been able to see this angel face to face, and yet God assures him. He says, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And so Gideon builds this altar. He, he essentially uh, restores proper worship, right? Proper worship of God there in Israel. Now, I recognize that that was a lot, and we, we rushed through it. But here's my point. What kind of man has Gideon shown himself to be? Not one who is brave. Not one is who is bold, not one who is particularly faithful in his belief or in his trust or in his conception of who the holy God is. But, you know, we might be inclined to, to cut him a little slack here, right? We might say, well, look, this was the initial call. It was dramatic. Uh, and Gideon is not the first nor the last to have doubts. And that's certainly true. But notice, secondly, that, that things don't get a lot better as Gideon's story goes along. We've seen the call, but now notice his initial work there in verses 25 through 27. God tells him to go and to destroy the altar of Baal that's at his father's house in the town that he grew up in, to cut down the Asherah, to build an altar to God out of the wood there, and to make an offering unto God again, to restore proper worship, right worship of God among God's people. And it starts out good in verse 27. That very night, he goes down to do it. But how does he go to do it? Under the cover 
of darkness, right? And why under the cover of darkness? Because he is afraid. He's afraid of his father's house, of his brothers, of the people that are there. He's afraid of the townspeople. He knows they will be furious, that they will want to kill him for what he's about to do. And so he tries to do it all in secret. Now, it's, it's interesting to me, and I might be making too much of this, but it's interesting to me that in verses 22 and 23, uh, Gideon had feared God, right? He was, he was afraid because he had seen the angel of the Lord face to face, and that fear of the Lord caused him to do what was right, to, to build an altar there and to worship. But now, who does he fear? No longer is it God who he fears, but it is man who he fears, right? It is his father's house. It is these, these men of the city that he is afraid of. And so no longer can he do what God has called him to do in the right way. Yes, he tears down the altar, but notice who has to account for it. It's not Gideon. It's Gideon's father, right? Gideon is, is somewhere hiding from what he has done, and it is his father who comes out and gives all the right answers to be sure. He says, if Baal is really a god, let him contend for himself. But it's not Gideon, the judge, the one that God has raised up, who takes the fury. It's not him who takes the judgment. And so again, I ask, how's Gideon doing in terms of his leadership, uh, of his faith here? If we could have taken a, a straw poll, where, where are Gideon's uh, numbers at here? Is, where is his popularity trending to? He's done some good things. He hadn't really done it with a lot of confidence. And he hadn't really done it with a lot of faith in the one who has assured him of so much. And one last time, we're going to see that again there in verses 33 through 40, okay? So this is the third point, uh, the continued doubts of Gideon. The Canaanites, they come out against Israel. Both sides gather there, but before the two sides can engage, Gideon once again, he needs some proof. He needs some sign that God is going to do what he says he is going to do. And so we have this whole scene there with the fleece. You know, he puts it out. If it's wet and the ground is dry, he wrings it out. He has this whole bowl of dew. And then he goes so far, and this, this is amazing to me, you know, he knows the law. He knows that God says in Deuteronomy, do not test the Lord your God, because you can see it in his response. He's nervous. He knows that he should not do what he's about to do. He tests him once. He says, but Lord, let me test you again. But let me see one more time that this really is you. And so he puts it back out there, and all the ground is wet, and the fleece, it comes back dry. Gideon, he is weak of faith. He's not exactly what you would think of as, as leadership material. He's really not what you would think of as a judge, right? Now, here's the deal. My, my reason for all of that this morning, to, to go through all of that with you, was to get to this point so that I can ask, how do we apply any of this to our own lives, right? How do we take this story of Gideon, seeing who he is, and say, all right, what does this mean for us? Well, there's three ways that we can apply this, okay? We can say, hey, let's just be like Gideon. Again, we can sterilize the story. Gideon did great things, ultimately. 
And we can push through all of that doubt and that fear, and we can do God's will just like Gideon did. We can just pull ourselves up, even when we're afraid, and we can just keep going. Let me ask you this. Do you, after all of that, really want to be like Gideon? Honest with you. I, I don't really think I do. The answer is both here in the beginning of his story, and it's also at the end of his story, right? You remember at the end of his story, he essentially, without proclaiming it, makes himself king. And he's, he kind of resisted at the beginning, but he makes for himself this great piece of clothing to wear, and he becomes essentially the king. His family is in shambles, his family ultimately overthrows him so that they can become the judge. He, he, it's all a wreck. It's all a giant mess. And so, friends, if our, if our goal is to be like Gideon, if it's to be like Samson, if it's to be like David, if it's to be like Moses, any of these guys, if it's to be like Paul or Peter or James or any of them, then ultimately we're going to be in trouble because all of them showed us who they are. Yes, they were faithful in many things, but in the end, they were sinners. We need someone else. Second way to apply this, and maybe a better way, is we can see that God's work through Gideon, right? We can say, all right, it wasn't Gideon that did all of these things. It was the Lord who did all of these things in and through his life. It was the Lord's assurance. It was his power. It was his spirit at work all along the way. Essentially, what, what this story reminds us is what God declares in Deuteronomy chapter 7. You remember there he says of the people of Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And here it is. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Again, the idea here is it is God who is faithful. So we, as his people, look to him. It's the same thing that Paul realizes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember, he says God's power is made perfect in my weakness, right? When I am weak... God is strong. He is the one who is condescending to us. He is the one who is doing the work. And so we, we look at this story and we say, don't trust in ourselves. Don't, don't trust in men. If our trust is to be anywhere, it is to be in God. And friends, that's a good application of this story. Uh, to be sure, that's essentially what we did all week at camp this week. Uh, we, we went through the, the covenants, and so we covered all of redemptive history this week. We started in the covenant of redemption before time, and we ran all the way through the end when Jesus' glorious return. And so they got to see all of those men, just as Ben was telling you. They got to see how they failed and how God was faithful through it all. And so we look to God, but friends, there's a third way. And this is, this is really the, the part that I wanted us to get to, okay? So there's a, a better and best way to apply these stories of Scripture, particularly these, these stories in the Old Testament. 
and it's to look at the bigger plan of redemptive history. What, what's happening here in the life of Israel? Well, we said it at the beginning. God, God is trying to drive them to a king, right? He, he is trying to show them that they need better leadership. They need someone to lead them. The problem is, is no man can do it, right? Even as the story continues, even as we read through Scripture, we recognize that not David, not Solomon, none of the kings of Israel are able to do it. And so who is it that Judges is ultimately pointing us to? Who is Gideon ultimately pointing us to? If you turn to Luke 24, and we don't have to do that right now, but if you turn there, you remember that on the road to Emmaus, Jesus opens up the Scriptures with the law and the prophets and the writings. And he says that all of this is about who? All of it is about me. All of this is about Jesus. No, all of the men in these pages of Scripture, there's really only one purpose of them all. And the purpose is not to be an example to us, though there are times where they are a good example to us. The purpose of all of them, for Israel and for us, is to point us to a Savior. Is to point us to a Messiah. Someone who will not hide when things get bad. Someone who will not doubt the purposes of God. Someone who will not fear men more than they fear God. Someone who will, who will follow and do all that He, God, has commanded them to do perfectly, to the end, consistently, and keep us. Friends, the only proper application of Gideon in all the Old Testament is to follow its course right to the only Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord. He boldly received and submitted to, the, to God's call. He consistently lived in the fear of the Lord. You remember 1 Peter? People were, uh, they were uh, throwing insults at him. He didn't revile in return, right? But what did he do? He constantly entrusted himself to the will of his father. He, not with 300 men, but utterly alone, he defeated all of God's enemies, all of God's people's enemies. He alone had a full measure of the Spirit. He alone can redeem now and forevermore. What other Redeemer can keep us, not just in this life, but even into the next? He alone gives us these wonderful signs, the sacraments that remind us. He knows we're weak. These sacraments that remind us over and over and over again of what he has done. And so, friends, my, my point is as you read Scripture, if you're looking for an example, if you're looking for a Savior, if you're looking for something to, to hang your hat on, don't hang it on these characters. Hang it on the one that the characters point us to. Hang it to Jesus. Hang it on Jesus. Not only that, but if you're here today and you, like Israel, are in a cycle of sin, or if you, like me, feel your weakness in its full measure, if you're overwhelmed, if you're just trying to find a way out of life's mess, and let me encourage you, don't look to yourself because it won't work. Don't, don't look to men of this earth. 
look to Jesus. In him, God's power is made perfect. In him, all of the promises are yes and amen. In him, you can be saved. In only him, you can be saved once and for all. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray that as we approach your word, as we consider it, uh, that you would apply it to our hearts in a proper way, uh, that you would help us to see Jesus through it. Uh, Lord, these great men of the faith are, are there for us, and in many ways they do remind us to, to have faith, to trust in you with all that we are. But Lord, if, that's, if we don't see Jesus in these pages, in these words, then Lord, we've missed the whole point. And so, Lord, I pray that you would always drive us to our Savior, and we thank you that he does overcome our sin and our weakness to do great things through us. Uh, Lord, it is not us, uh, but it is he who who is our strength. It is he who is our refuge. And I pray that you would allow us all to, to rest in that truth, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.